I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. A subset of patients treated with checkpoint inhibitors respond particularly well to these immunotherapies. The so-called elite responders produce antibodies that modulate immune cells in the tumor microenvironment. Oncoresponse is working to discover the antibody these elite responders produce to develop a pipeline of cancer therapies. We spoke to Bob Lechleiter, chief medical officer of Oncoresponse, about the tumor microenvironment, how his company is studying elite responders to immunotherapies to discover new antibodies to modulate the immune system, and his company's lead program in clinical development. Bob, thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, Excited to tell you about our program. We're going to talk about immunotherapies, oncoresponse, and how its platform technology is learning from elite responders to develop antibodies that can modulate the immune system and improve outcomes for patients. Let's start with immunotherapies. How successful are these as an approach to treating cancer? You know, immunotherapies have really transformed the way cancers are treated, And you could look at a bunch of different metrics to understand that. You could look at the number of cancers that are treated with immunotherapies, and every day there seems to be a new indication of an additional tumor type or line of therapy where immunotherapies are are used. You can look at the you can look at the um, the amount of money (laughs) that's generated, you know, with the immunotherapies, and they're huge drugs uh, for the pharma companies that that market them. But I think that really the most important thing is what has it done for the patients? And just by, by one simple measure, looking at, uh, for example, survival in lung cancer. So there's a recent study that was published looking at uh, using registry data. So that's real live, you know, real world data. And um, in the time since immunotherapies have been introduced, you know, overall survival at three years has tripled. So it's gone from about 6% to 18%. Now that may not sound like a big deal, but for all those patients who've benefited from it, uh, it is a big deal. So they really, immunotherapies have just transformed the way we treat cancer now. What happens in the tumor microenvironment that can render immunotherapies ineffective for some patients? Yeah, there are a lot of things that can happen. And, and, and it differs per patient and it differs by tumor and it differs even within the same tumor type. But in general, the way immunotherapies work is to activate T cells, right? So they, the T cells in, in most cancers have become um, resistant to being able to kill the cancer. And by using a PD-1 or a PDL one or maybe a CTLA-4, those are the most common immunotherapies. By using those, what you do is you enable the, you kind of wake the T cell up. You reverse that checkpoint and uh, allow the T cell to go ahead and kill the cancer cells. But 
sometimes that doesn't work, either because there are other factors in the microenvironment that are produced by uh, cells like macrophages that suppress the T cell, uh, or because the T cells can't get into the to the tumor to kill the cells. So it's it's a it's not one simple answer. There are a lot of things that that cause it, but one of the key things is is the tumor microenvironment, and we think one of the important things are the tumor associated macrophages in that microenvironment that suppress the activity of T cells. There's a group of patients that are known as elite responders. What constitutes someone who is an elite responder? Right. So an elite responder is a term that we use here at OncoResponse to talk about patients who have really exquisite responses to cancer immunotherapy. So even though these therapies are fantastic, most patients still don't respond. Uh, and, and even the ones who do often uh, only respond for a, a little while. But some patients, the so-called elite responders, they have really good responses. And what I mean by that is they have a partial response or a complete response, that is the tumor shrinks or it goes away completely, and it lasts for a good long time. So the, the kind of definition we use is somebody who has a partial response or a complete response that lasts at least three months. But really what we are talking about are patients who have that response for about six months. Those are patients who are special. They've received an immunotherapy and they've had a great response to it, maybe even been cured by it. We want to understand more about how that happens. There's a, another term I'd, I'd like to review with you. This has got to do with hot and cold tumors. What's a hot tumor? What's a cold tumor? And can you explain the difference in the role this plays in the body generating an immune response? So the broad difference between a hot and cold tumor is that for hot tumors, they have an inflamed phenotype. So those tumors are tumors that have a lot of immune cells already in the tumor bed. You know, the, the tumor is kind of like an organ and it has a lot of different cells that contribute to it. And, and one of those sets of cells are immune cells. And in the hot tumor, those immune cells are, are, are there and ready to be activated. Uh, and, and those patients who have those hot tumors, they tend to respond pretty well to immunotherapies because they've already got the things there that are necessary uh, for that response. So cold tumors are the opposite. Those are tumors that don't really have an immune response. They're not inflamed. Uh, they don't have a lot of immune cells. They don't have a lot of T cells. Maybe they have some immunoinhibitory macrophages in there that are preventing activation of those T cells. And those cold tumors, those are the tricky ones. Those are the ones that are harder to treat with immunotherapies because, because the T cells either can't get to the tumor or they're not able to be activated because there are other things within the tumor that prevent their activation. So understanding, first of all, who are the, who are the, what are the tumor types that have uh, hot tumors? What are the patients who have those particular tumors? Being able to treat those easily with a PD-1, but more importantly, really understanding how can we reverse that hot, that cold phenotype, excuse me, and get a hot phenotype? Because if we can get a hot phenotype, then we know that the, the current immunotherapies work quite well. So really trying to Understand that difference and reverse that cold phenotype is something we're very interested in. Onco Response is a broad collaboration with MD Anderson Cancer Center to discover antibodies from elite responders and find ways to modulate immune cells in the tumor microenvironment. How does your collaboration with Anderson work? 
Yeah, so the collaboration with MD Anderson is a really important uh, part of our program, and it was something that uh, at the founding of Anka Response was was initiated quite early. Uh, and it's a great collaboration. In fact, MD Anderson is so impressed with their technology that they invested in one of our early funding rounds, uh, and they're big supporters of us. So the collaboration works on multiple different levels. On the very simplest level, uh, doctors at MD Anderson are looking out for patients who have these elite responses and sending us samples. We have a broad agreement uh, with them to identify and collect samples from those patients. Obviously, we do it uh, you know, with all the right uh, measures in place, like uh, informed consent and compliance and everything like that. Uh, and we get those samples to to use in our in our system to identify uh, antibodies that, that might be uh, regulatory and important. We'll talk more about that later. But also, uh, many of the doctors at MD Anderson serve on our scientific advisory board and help advise us in terms of new targets we should be looking at or different ways of analyzing the targets we currently have uh, and ways we can do our screening. So it it really helps us both from a development intellectual standpoint, but also from a very functional standpoint in terms of being able to get samples that we can put into our system and, and identify future targets. Well, walk me through your approach to discovery. How does your platform work? Yeah, so um, what we are interested in is identifying regulatory antibodies that these elite responders may make. So the hypothesis is, is that if you're an elite responder, there's something else going on inside your immune system that's facilitating the work of the standard immunotherapies. In other words, you're doing something else. Your body is doing something else that's allowing those immunotherapies to work well. And what we, what we hypothesized was that patients who are elite responders are making antibodies to uh, regulatory proteins in the tumor microenvironment that facilitate the activity of uh, other immunotherapies. You know, it's not such a strange concept. We know that cancer patients have a breakdown in immune tolerance, that they can make autoantibodies, that is antibodies to normal self proteins. So it's not so far-fetched to think that, you know, maybe they could be making regulatory proteins that might start to activate the immune system and help immune checkpoints to work. So with that hypothesis in mind, what we did was identify some of these elite responders, collected their blood, and then started to screen for uh, antibodies that might have these kinds of regulatory properties. So the way we do that is, and this is kind of the secret sauce of the company, so to speak, is we can, we can grow the B cells from those patients at clonal density. That is, we can grow them out in such a way that, that each well in the culture plate is making uh, uh, antibodies only from one clone of cells. So it's making a monoclonal antibody. And then what we can do is take those monoclonal antibodies and screen against a particular target. And we can do that a couple of different ways. One way to do it is to screen against known proteins. That's very straightforward. Just put some proteins on a plate and screen against that. But the other thing that we can do is do functional screens. And one way to do that is to take a cell type of interest. In the case of our first product, it's um, <clears throat> macrophages. So so-called M2 immunoinhibitory macrophages. And we can screen to look at antibodies that combine to those M2 macrophages. And then once we identify those, we can do a back screen to eliminate ones that also bind to other antibody, other uh, macrophages that may not be important. 
And then we can do functional activity. So we can take those antibodies and screen them in a functional assay to see which ones are active and might uh, have the kinds of properties that we're looking for. And the nice thing about this uh, technology is that we can screen against macrophages, any other cell type in um, the tumor microenvironment. We could even screen against tumors themselves if we wanted to do it that way too. So the technology is very, very powerful because we use the human immune system as the way to identify uh, antibodies that are important in regulating the immune response. So it's, it's, really, um, it's really the best experimental system you can possibly imagine because it's actually the patient who's developing those antibodies. How unique are the antibodies you've found? Do you find an elite responder produces something unique to themselves or do elite responders tend to produce the same antibodies across patients? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think there's uh, some of both. So some of these antibodies that are generated are going to be unique uh, in that they will identify a unique epitope or act in a particular way. Uh, and some of them are going to be more general. <clears throat> I can give you the example of 2805, which is the antibody that we currently have in the clinic. And it has a very unusual mechanism of action in that it binds to a protein CD163, which is not normally thought to be regulating the immune system. However, uh, the data that we've generated in vitro and are currently trying to generate in the clinic demonstrate that OR2805 can bind to CD163 and reverse the immunosuppressive phenotype on uh, M2 inhibitory macrophages. Now, because of the way it binds, it binds to very particular epitopes on CD163. It's unlikely that it's that that particular antibody is going to show up in a lot of other elite responders. But there's no reason to think that it can't work in other patients who don't necessarily have the antibody. That's the hypothesis. So that's 2805. That's a, a perhaps a unique antibody. We don't know. We haven't we haven't um, collected enough samples to be able to go back and look and see if any any other patients have 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 uh, generated an antibody just like it. But there are other antibodies that we know are generated by multiple different elite responders. So for example, LILRB2 is another protein involved in regulating uh, macrophage function. It's also called ILT4. And what we found is it, in that in several elite responders, we found autoantibodies to LILRB2, suggesting that that is a common mechanism whereby um, you can uh, reverse the immunosuppressive phenotype in the tumor microenvironment. In the case of 0825, did you do anything to optimize the molecule or did you just clone it and move it into clinical trials? Right. So um, OR2805 um, was a human antibody when we identified it. Um, the, the only thing that we did to it was to put it into a um, in a framework that was a very manufacturable framework. So we wanted to make sure that we would have something that would be easily manufactured, but we didn't change any of the other characteristics of the antibody. The Interestingly, when we originally identified 2805, we didn't know what the target was. All we knew is that it bound to M2 macrophages and it could change their phenotype from being an immunosuppressive phenotype to being an immunostimulatory phenotype, basically going from cold to hot. Um, however, um, through a lot of you know hard work, we identified the target, which is CD163, and identified exactly how it binds to the target and how it functions in terms of 
reversing that, that cold phenotype uh, of those macrophages. And how specific is it to tumor types? Well, you know, it's specific to CD163, and CD163 is a really good marker for immunosuppressive macrophages. So um, it, there's a lot of published data out there showing that CD163 expression levels correlate, high levels of expression correlate with worse uh, prognosis, so worse overall survival, worse progression-free survival. And that's with both conventional chemotherapies and with immunotherapies. So CD163 expression in general correlates with the amount of you know, immunosuppressive macrophage infiltration in the tumor. And there are a lot of tumor types that have that, that, that characteristics, and it varies uh, within, within tumor types. So you may have a particular tumor type, which in general has a lot, but in some cases will have, have a little. But really across the board, CD163 is an important component of immunosuppression within the tumor. So it's not tumor type specific, it's, you know, it's not tumor type specific, uh, and it's not, um, it doesn't seem to be, as far as we know, stage specific or anything like that. Given that, how do you think about pursuing indications in terms of clinical trials? Right, so that's a great question, and it's always, a, it's always an important question when designing your clinical development program. So, you know, the first thing that we have to do is really understand the overall characteristics of the drug, you know, the safety and, and how to dose it. And then what we've decided to do is take a, 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 a mixed approach, uh, shall we say. So we're looking at a couple of tumor types where we know that macrophage biology is likely to be important. Uh, and then a couple of tumor types where we, where, where we don't know. And, and the reason to do that really is to give ourselves a, a broad approach. We're early in development, right? So we give ourselves a broad approach. So we're looking in lung and melanoma. We know that macrophage biology is important there. Uh, those tumor types are both treated up in the front line with anti-PD-1 or anti-PDL1 therapy. So we can go after that and see if we can restore immune responsiveness. And then we have a kind of basket indication of a couple of other tumor types, including sarcomas and head and neck cancer, where it's unclear exactly how important macrophage biology is, although it's felt to be important in sarcoma. And uh, we'll understand a bit better whether or not uh, interaction with CD163 by 2805 can, can uh, produce a response. We're still early. We don't have any data on that yet, but that's the approach that we've generally taken. As we move along and get uh, indications of activity, and importantly, as we do our uh, translational medicine program and understand better within the tumor what happens when we treat with OR2805, we'll be able to narrow down tumor types more specifically. But there's really no reason to think that uh, treatment with 2805 could not be broadly applicable. That is, that it may be much like the PD-1s in that many, many different tumor types uh, can be regulated through macrophage biology and that we can treat with 2805 to, to help reverse that immunoinhibitory phenotype. In terms of selecting patients for study, do you do any tumor profiling to make sure they have that receptor or do you do any testing to see if they're already producing that antibody themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we are not. And I think, I think, that it's important that we are not. The, the reason I say that is that we're not smart enough to really know what we should be looking for. So we're looking for everything. Um, if we said, okay, we're only going to select patients who have a certain number of CD163 positive cells, we have no idea what that number would be. Is it 
1%, 10%, 90%, we don't know. If you look at, you know, if you look at the, the checkpoint inhibitor literature, there, there are multiple different cut points for different tumor types in terms of PDL1 expression. Uh, and I think that if you went in and said, I know the answer beforehand, you'd clearly be wrong. So we don't know the answer to that. So our approach really is to say, okay, let's get as much information as we can. Let's look at CD163 expression levels. Let's look at the levels of circulating CD163. Let's look at the ratio of T cells to macrophages. Let's take all that information and as we go along, look at it in terms of responsiveness, in terms of safety, in terms of mechanism of action to better understand and then maybe in the future, we'll be able to select patients who are more likely to respond. But right now we don't have enough information to be able to do that. I imagine you're looking at this in combination with an immunotherapy, but is there any potential for this as a monotherapy by just having it help the patient's own immune system act on the tumor? Sure, that's a great question. And we think that there is potential for monotherapy. In fact, our preclinical data in mouse models demonstrated that we had pretty good monotherapy activity. We had um, growth inhibition that was comparable to or better than what we saw with uh, a PD-1 antibody in the same model system. So from that data, we think that, yes, there is a possibility in the clinic that we'll see monotherapy. It's really important during your clinical development program that you understand the activity of your agent both alone and in combination. So one of the things we are doing early on is establishing what the monotherapy activity looks like with 2805. We don't have any data yet, but when we do, we'll be able to say, okay, we have an activity that maybe it's good enough in terms of treating certain tumor types for us to be able to, to move it forward, or maybe it's good but not that good enough, uh, and we'll have to do it in combination. But it's it's critically important to establish that early on so you kind of know what your baseline is as you move forward. Uh, what is the clinical development path forward? So it's a pretty straightforward path. You know, the first, the first piece, of course, is the phase one study. We're in phase one right now. We're currently uh, uh, in dose escalation. Uh, once we establish... Uh, our, our, our dose moving forward, the next step is to move into expansion cohorts. <clears throat> and in those cohorts, what we'll be doing is looking at the activity of 2805 alone or in combination with simiplumab. We've been, uh, uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to partner with Regeneron. We have a supplier agreement with them to provide simiplumab, also known as Liptio, uh, for our study. They, um, uh, so we'll be doing that combination with the PD-1 inhibitor and 2805 uh, in both melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer. Of course, we'll also be looking at monotherapy activity in those two tumor types and trying to understand whether or not uh, we have uh, potential for, you know, for a treatment there. The other thing that we're doing is uh, what we call a biology cohort. And in that, what we're doing is we're treating subjects in the study with monotherapy 2805 uh, and getting biopsies before and during treatment. So these are patients who come in and, and um, offer to get biopsies both before and during treatment so that we can understand better how 2805 works. We can look to see any changes in the tumor microenvironment with 2805 treatment. We can understand a bit better whether there are any uh, uh, things that have to be present in the tumor microenvironment before treatment that lead to responses. So that's a very, very important uh, component of the clinical development plan. And then obviously, once we see activity, you know, moving forward to 
characterize that more fully and then and then develop in the tumor types where we think there's where we think there's likely to be uh, success but it's it it's not that different from any other uh, clinical development program uh the the you have to do the basics you got to walk before you run and uh we're trying to walk really really fast right now and is there a partnering strategy here how do you look at partnering with developers of immunotherapies right so the the intent our intent with 2805 is to develop that as fully as we can on our own but we also recognize that at some point it may be advantageous to us as a company but actually more importantly to the to the drug 2805 to partner with a large pharma so one thing that biotech does very well is innovation and discovery and early development one thing that pharma does exquisitely well is you know large scale late stage development so at some point it we we may find it advantageous uh, for all concerned you know to go ahead and do a partnership uh and and if when that point comes along we'll be happy to do it because i think by we'll we'll maximize the will maximize the extent of the reach of the drug uh, should it be successful if we have that kind of partnership. Uh, and when the right time comes along, I'm sure that both of us will know it. So, You've completed a Series C financing of $40.6 million last year. How far do you expect that to take you? And what's the financing plan going forward? You know, the overall trajectory for the company is to uh, continue to develop 2805 and our, and our other products in the pipeline uh, as far as we can. And obviously what that means is continued financing where, as you, you know, as you know, we're a privately held company. We're not yet public, um, although I think the plan is in the, in the long term uh, for us to become public so that we can tap into mark, capital markets and be able to adequately and, and fully uh, fund all of our exciting development programs. So with the current funding we have, we're gonna get quite far in being able to understand uh, what 2805 can do, whether it can become a medicine uh, and kind of how the path forward is going to be for that. You, you know, obviously the, uh, there's, there's, there's not enough money in all the money that we've collected for us to be able to go all the way through to the end of phase three, that, that those studies cost on their own a hundred, $150 million. So obviously we're going to need to do more financing as we move forward. But right now we're in good shape to be able to understand how the drug is going to work and, and get an idea of how effective it's going to be. Bob Leckblatter, chief medical officer for Onco Response. Bob, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, too. Appreciated talking to you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.